from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, Kevin. This is Gabrielle Kelly at The Washington Post. How are you? Hey there. It's Simon from The Post. Uh, hey, it's Dave Farron from Post. Have you got a second talk? This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Wednesday, May 29th. Today, Robert Mueller's first public statement about the Russia investigation. The Democrats rallying against abortion and the case for believing in UFOs. When you woke up this morning, were you expecting to hear from Robert Mueller today? No, absolutely not. Roz Helderman is an investigative reporter for The Post. I saw that he was going to be speaking as I was riding an elevator down to the metro. And it was quite an adrenaline charge. Uh, Good morning, everyone, and thank you for being here. We've been waiting for two years to hear from Robert Mueller. I have not spoken publicly during our investigation. He has literally said nothing. He has never appeared on camera. He has issued one statement in his own words, which was one sentence when he accepted the appointment uh, in May of 2017. And suddenly we get this alert this morning that he's going to give an on-camera statement. But from the start, he indicated he would not be taking any questions. All we knew is that it was going to be fairly short, about eight minutes long, and in some ways, substantive. That's what we were told. It would be substantive. And what did he say? So he said a few things. First of all, I I think kind of the big headline was he formally announced that the investigation is over. I'm speaking out today because our investigation is complete. The attorney general has made the report on our investigation largely public. We are formally closing the special counsel's office. And as well, I'm resigning from the Department of Justice to return to private life. It's been sort of over in the public's mind since he issued his report, but the special counsel's office has remained officially open. He's been coming to work. So he formally said, you know, we've we've been at this for two years. We have completed our report. We have completed our work. The special counsel's office is closing. We are done. Uh, That was the first sort of category of thing he said. The second was that he summarized the results of the investigation. And here he stuck very, very closely uh, to what was said in the report. He talked about how there was a concerted effort by the Russian government to interfere in the U.S. election, and there have been indictments, criminal indictments issued as a result of of those efforts. He talked about how uh, that was an important topic to investigate. The indictments allege, and the other activities in our report describe, efforts to interfere in our political system. They needed to be investigated and understood. And that is among the reasons why the Department of Justice established our office. And that it was important to investigate the possibility that the Trump campaign in some way coordinated with those efforts. And they found there was insufficient evidence to charge a broader conspiracy. And then he talked about what they said on obstruction. That is also a reason we investigated efforts to obstruct the investigation. The matters we investigated were of paramount importance. It was critical for us to obtain full and accurate information from every person we questioned. When a subject of an investigation obstructs that investigation or lies to investigators, it strikes at the core of their government's effort to find the truth and hold wrongdoers accountable. And he he really seemed to focus in on this idea of why weren't they able to 
charged the president with obstruction of justice and and explained their thinking on that. It's true. He tried to explain their thinking. Much of this is written in the report, and he urged us all to kind of read about it in further depth. But what he said was that they determined that the guidelines and policies of the Department of Justice prohibit the criminal indictment of a sitting president. If we had had confidence that the president clearly did not commit a crime, we would have said so. We did not, however, make a determination as to whether the president did commit a crime. The introduction to the volume two of our report explains that decision. It explains that under long-standing department policy, a president cannot be charged with a federal crime while he is in office. That is unconstitutional. Uh, And he did note that the department policies make it clear that there is another process for holding a president accountable for wrongdoing other than the criminal justice system. And that, of course, is the impeachment process in Congress. The special counsel's office is part of the Department of Justice, and by regulation, it was bound by that department policy. Charging the president with a crime was therefore not an option we could consider. Those points are summarized in our report, and I will describe two of them for you. First, the opinion explicitly permits the investigation of a sitting president. The Constitution requires a process other than the criminal justice system to formally accuse a sitting president of wrongdoing. And in some ways, what he said at this press conference is very much what the Mueller report itself said. But the fact that he took the time to explain that in this context and seemed to want to highlight that again, it seemed like it was an important point to him. Well, and it's important to note that where the office came out is somewhat different than where the attorney general has come out. And I think he wanted to remind the American people what they said in their report, because it is different than what the attorney general has said. The attorney general has said that he and the deputy attorney general, Rod Rosenstein, reviewed the evidence and determined there was not a criminal case to be made. The deputy attorney general and I concluded that the evidence developed by the special counsel is not sufficient to establish that the president committed an obstruction of justice offense. People will remember that on the day that Bill Barr made the report public or a redacted version of the report public, he gave this press conference before releasing it where he talked about how essentially there was not sufficient evidence to charge the president with obstruction. And that is a somewhat different thing than what the Office of Special Counsel actually themselves determined. So it feels like the fact that Robert Mueller is reiterating the conclusions of the report and also making it clear that they can't indict a president, but that there is another constitutional method for bringing charges against a president, it sort of seems like he's saying, wink, wink, nod, nod, that Congress should be looking seriously at impeaching Trump. I don't think Bob Mueller winks and nods. He has said what he wants to say, and now it is for the rest of us, including our elected representatives, to decide what to do about it. I don't think he wants to be in the business of giving us guidance. He has laid out what the policies and law and regulations say, which is that there is another process available for holding the president accountable. Uh, He has said that he cannot definitively state the president did not commit a crime. And then over about 150 pages, he laid out the facts of what the president did. I think it's for the rest of us to decide what to do with all of that. 
And then there was this other part of the press conference where Robert Mueller was basically like, I have said all I want to say on this. Everything that I need to say is in that report, and I don't plan to testify to Congress about it. Yeah. I mean, I think that that was, uh, in some ways, it felt like the driving reason why he did this today. Now, I hope and expect this to be the only time that I will speak to you in this manner. I am making that decision myself. No one has told me whether I can or should testify or speak further about this matter. There has been discussion about an appearance before Congress. Any testimony from this office would not go beyond our report. And the report is my testimony. He is leaving public life. There is this vigorous debate on the Hill about uh whether he will testify and under what conditions. There's been a lot of speculation and concern that maybe uh, the attorney general and the Department of Justice was somehow preventing him from publicly testifying. I think he basically said, this is all you're going to get out of me. If I came to the Hill as a witness, I will be a boring witness who sticks very closely to what we've said. And so then the question becomes, does Congress accept that? They have the power to subpoena him and force him to testify, right? Uh, They certainly have the power to try. Uh, They can issue a subpoena. They can try to force him to testify against his will. Uh, I suppose there's a possibility the Department of Justice could attempt to intervene and try to get the subpoena quashed on some grounds. There could be a legal fight. There's obviously a lot of legal fights now going on about congressional subpoenas. But the first step would have to be that the Democrats in Congress would have to decide they want to subpoena him and force him to testify again against his will. Do you think that what he said today will put more pressure on Democrats in Congress to pursue impeachment? The message we're starting to get from the Hill already is essentially this changes nothing. I do think there's going to be some Democrats who are sort of frustrated by this. It might actually push them to want to subpoena him, even though he has made it so clear uh, that that's not what he wants. Um, but we're going to have to see uh, how that how that plays out. You know, there is one Republican congressman who has called for the president to be impeached. He's been very vocal about this, very eloquent about what he thinks the report shows about the president's abuses of power and the need for Congress to act. Um, That's Justin Amash, the Republican congressman from Michigan. And he tweeted at the conclusion of Mueller's statement today, the ball is in our court, Congress. Uh, So that's his interpretation that, you know, Mueller is done. Now it's our turn. So now that Robert Mueller has given his first and I think what he hopes to be his last public statement on his investigation, are we done talking about this? I would sincerely doubt it. But I do think the attention moves as it has since he published his report to the Hill. Um, That's where the action is now. If there's going to be additional sort of investigations and information to come out, it will come out from the Hill. Uh, And, you know, the, the president is not going to be held accountable through a criminal justice process. That seems very clear. So if people believe he committed wrongdoing that he needs to be held to account for, that's going to have to be done either through the impeachment process or through the ballot box in 2020. Roz Helderman is a national investigative reporter for The Post. On Wednesday afternoon, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi responded to Mueller's statement. She said that Congress will, quote, continue to investigate and legislate to protect our elections and secure our democracy. I am gravely disappointed in the Justice Department for their attitude, uh, their uh, misrepresentation of the Mueller report to begin with, their uh, hiding behind something that you could never find in the Constitution, that the president is above the law, and their misrepresentations even under oath 
by the Attorney General to the Congress of the United States. She stopped short of saying that Democrats would open an impeachment inquiry. One hundred two members present and a quorum. Members, the House will be opened in prayer today by a guest minister, and he'll be introduced by Representative Adams. The Louisiana legislature is preparing to vote on a heartbeat bill. It's the latest state to try to enact a strict anti-abortion law. Good afternoon. I'd like to introduce Reverend James. The bill is expected to pass Louisiana's House, and after it does, it heads straight to the governor's desk. Governor John Bell Edwards has confirmed that he would sign it, which is not unusual in a very red southern state. Except Governor Edwards is a Democrat. So John Bell Edwards is the governor of Louisiana. He was elected in 2015. It's easy for me. I mean, that's that's the way I was raised. That's what my Catholic Christian faith requires. He's an Army veteran, and he's a devout Catholic. So I am pro-life. Reese Tebow is a reporter for The Post. And those views have, have informed a lot of his, uh, his political stances. Including his political stance on abortion. Yeah, exactly. He was a state legislator before he was a governor. He had some pretty anti-abortion beliefs there. And when he was elected governor, he ran on that. And he's legislated that way ever since he was elected. So he's against abortion, even though he's a Democrat. He's one of the few so-called pro-life Democrats remaining, and he's one of the high-profile members of that group that has really dwindled in in numbers and in influence in the past uh, few decades. So in the late 1970s, which was the same decade that the Roe v. Wade decision came down, there were about 120 Democrats in the House of Representatives who were not in favor of abortion rights. And those numbers come from Democrats for Life, an anti-abortion group. What is the state of pro-life Democrats right now? There are only about a handful left. There are a couple remaining in the House of Representatives, Colin Peterson in Minnesota and Dan Lipinski from Illinois. And there are a few in the Senate as well. Robert Casey from Pennsylvania, Joe Donnelly from Indiana, and Joe Manchin from West Virginia. So for Governor Edwards of Louisiana, why does he feel so strongly against abortion? He traces his beliefs to his religion and also to his life experiences. He has said that because he's a Catholic, this is just how he was raised, to oppose abortion. But he and his wife have also dealt with that decision firsthand. I was 20 weeks pregnant with our first child when the doctor discovered she had spina bifida and encouraged me to have an abortion. In a 2015 campaign ad, him and his wife talk about when she was pregnant, a doctor discovered that uh, their daughter had spina bifida and the doctor advised that they get an abortion. I was devastated, but John Bell never flinched. He just said, no, no, we're going to love this baby no matter what. And they refused. Samantha's getting married next spring, and she's living proof that John Bell Edwards lives his values every day. And to this day, they they use that as an example of why they oppose abortion. 
So Edwards is about to do something that is making a lot of Democrats very angry. Tell me about Louisiana's heartbeat bill. He said multiple times that he's going to sign this bill, this heartbeat bill. Um, As I have previously said, uh, it's my expectation that the bill will come to my desk uh, and that I will sign it. I always reserve the right to review the bill as it gets to me, depending on what amendments are on it and so forth. Uh, So Louisiana's heartbeat bill is similar to ones we've seen across the country, mostly in the South and the Midwest. Uh, these are bills that ban abortion after about six weeks of pregnancy, and that's before many women even know they're pregnant. We've seen these bills in Kentucky and in Georgia, in Mississippi, and what they are is a sort of a nationwide barrage to try to topple Roe v. Wade. And their supporters have said that, that the goal is not necessarily to enact these laws because courts time and again have said that they're unconstitutional. Their goal instead is to trigger a court battle that would eventually make its way to the Supreme Court, something that's not guaranteed to happen, but that's the effort. So Governor John Edwards is poised to sign this bill a Democratic governor signing an anti-abortion piece of legislation. What do other leaders in the Democratic Party say about this? People are mad. Stacey Abrams, the uh, the rising Democratic star, she may have uh, understated a little bit the, the Democrats' feelings when she said that she was a little annoyed at uh, Governor Edwards. They see this as the ultimate betrayal in a time when Democrats have so far presented a united front against this uh, this drumbeat of, of legislation. And it feels like this says something significant about the ways that the Democratic Party has evolved over the years. Because back in the 70s, it used to be an acceptable stance to say that you are a Democrat and you don't believe in abortion. But that in 2019, that is no longer a thing that the party finds acceptable. Right. It's just another example of how polarized we've become. And a lot of pro-life Democrats will say, hey, what happened to the Democratic Party we we used to know where diversity was valued and it was a big tent and, you know, they welcomed us there. But now abortion has really become an issue that uh, sorts Democrats and Republicans. So for these pro-life Democrats, how are they responding to the fact that they're basically being pushed out of the party. So I talked to the head of Democrats for Life, a woman named Kristen Day, and she's always been opposed to abortion, and she's watched her party move farther and farther away from her on her core issue. Yeah, so it's been very discouraging to see the shift away from being an inclusive party. We, we claim to be the party of diversity and inclusion, and yet we have calls to remove people from the party because we happen to believe that life in the womb is worth protecting. And obviously what we've seen over the past couple of decades is that the Republican Party has become the party of pro-life, right? So if folks in Democrats for Life feel so passionately about this, then why don't they become Republicans? I've asked them that same question, actually. And it's because they have a saying. They like to say, we're pro-life for the whole life, which means not only do they oppose abortion, but they support uh, expansions to the social safety net. So stuff like expanding Medicaid and raising the minimum wage and uh, advocating for paid family leave. And, and so their thought is that being pro-life is the one exception to what is an otherwise like very democratic set of beliefs. Right, exactly. 
And I still feel like the Democratic Party has, um, you know, the, I believe the government does have a responsibility to help its people. And, you know, you'd have to change the Republican Party on a lot more issues than I would have to change in the Democratic Party. And she told me that she's often thought about leaving the party, about becoming an independent, but decided not to because then she said there would really be no one left in the party fighting for it. We could leave, but where do you go? And we're just fighting to exist within the Democratic Party. We're just saying, let us work on all the issues that we agree with you on. And I think it's important to have that diversity in the party. So what does this mean for Governor John Bell Edwards and for other Democrats in office who are openly pro-life? I think it just comes down to who you represent. Dan Lipinski, the representative from Chicago, is under fire from progressive activists who want to vote him out of office for this very reason. He's facing a vigorous challenge from the left. But Governor Edwards, meanwhile, is the governor in a state that has one of the most anti-abortion views in the country. So that's something that's it's very much in the cultural milieu in Louisiana. Edwards, for now, is probably pretty safe. Now, if he has any designs on national politics in the future, then this might come back to haunt him. It seems like they've gotten to a point where the party has had to make decisions about who are we and what do we care about and what issues are we willing to lay on the line for. And it seems like abortion is one of them, that in 2019, to be a Democrat means that you have to believe in a woman's right to abortion. Yeah, that's true. And at the same time as this solidifying in in stance on abortion has, has happened, we've also seen more and more women in the Democratic Party get elected and uh, take charge of, of key national positions. Now, whether that's a cause and effect, I, I can't say. But we've we've seen the Democratic Party really become the champion of reproductive rights. So Edwards and other pro-life Democrats will say, look, we haven't changed. We've always believed this and we've been accepted. But it's the Democratic Party itself on a national level that has moved farther to the left on this issue. And for a long time, this has been the criticism of the Democratic Party that they don't know what they believe in. They don't really stand for anything, that they're trying to be too many things. And in some ways, it seems like this is what it looks like when the Democratic Party decides what it believes in and decides that for some views, they're just not willing to allow them to be part of a party. That if you are a Democrat who doesn't believe in abortion, then you are no longer a Democrat. Yeah, they've definitely solidified their their stance on it. And, you know, that might leave these pro-life Democrats as uh, political exiles. Reese Tebow is a reporter for The Post. And now, one more thing. Recently, the U.S. Navy acknowledged, for the first time ever, the existence of UFOs. So I bet many of you are wondering whether I think aliens exist. And the answer is, I don't know. That's Daniel Dresner. I'm a professor of international politics at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. This week, Daniel wrote in the Post opinion section about the case for believing in UFOs. The evidence is undeniably clear that UFOs exist. That means literally unidentified flying objects, which means we don't know what they are. 
So between 2014 and 2015, Navy pilots stationed on the eastern seaboard started recording contacts with UFOs, with an unidentified flying object oh my gosh. that was flying in a way that they couldn't explain. Oh my gosh, dude. Wow. This wasn't just a case of one single pilot hallucinating. Multiple pilots were witnessing and describing these events to each other. They're all going against the wind. The wind's 120 knots to the west. Oh, all they do. In some cases, these sort of little, they were described as tic-tacs, moving around at speeds against the wind that did not seem to be possible by man-made forms of propulsion that seemed to be violating the laws of physics in a variety of ways in terms of how they started and stopped. The Navy, in response to these pilots insisting that they were seeing things, the Navy created a records-keeping program and encouraged its pilots to report these things with the idea being of, look, we need to actually acquire some data on this subject. The problem with UFOs traditionally has been that if you say the word UFO, if you say that you believe in UFOs, historically it has been very easy to marginalize that person or to suggest that that person has psychological issues. And what is interesting is that in recent years, you're now beginning to see organs of the U.S. government, particularly the Defense Department, acknowledge that UFOs exist. And what is interesting is that you're seeing people like Navy pilots, people we tend to assume have an awful lot of credibility, willing to go on the record saying that they saw these things. So there are a number of possible explanations for UFOs. One possibility is that it's eyewitness error. It's that you've got pilots who think they see something, but they don't necessarily see it. Of course, the fact that we have video evidence does suggest that's not necessarily the explanation in this case. Another possibility is that it is a foreign country that is developing this technology and testing it off the U.S. seaboard. That's certainly, in, in some ways, that would explain why the Defense Department was particularly interested in these things. That said, there doesn't seem to be a great deal of consensus that, let's say, countries like Russia or China have the capacity to produce anything like the kind of UFOs that have been cited. A third possibility, which you know starts going in more into conspiracy theorizing, is that actually this is a secret U.S. government program and that it's just that these pilots and the Navy haven't been looped in on it. And then finally, the most far-fetched possibility is that this is a technology that was not created on Earth. I think the big takeaway from all of this is that we're operating in a, in a zone of uncertainty. And that's not something that human beings genuinely like. We like to think that we can explain every phenomenon out there. It is just something that cannot be explained. And if there's anything human beings love to do, it's to try to explain things. Daniel Dresner is a professor at Tufts University. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Hey, this is Christina Quinn. I'm the host of Try This, the Washington Post's new series of audio courses. The idea behind Try This is to become better functioning humans without having to comb the internet for countless hours. 
In our first course, we learned how to sleep better. Now, we're going to learn how to make our friendships stronger. I'll offer expert tips that are doable, and I'll keep it short. So let's do this. Classes in session. Find Try This from The Washington Post wherever you listen.